Today we'll be reading out of Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go, go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say simply yes or or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard it said, you have heard that it it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your own Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I have a simple question to ask you. Have you been a good Christian this week? 
It seems strange for a grace-based gospel-preaching pastor to be asking that kind of question, does it not? But humor me anyway, have you been a good Christian this week? Thinking back on your week, you might want to wait to answer, good or bad. Thinking back on your week, you might say something like this. I think I've been reasonably decent Christian this week. I haven't killed anyone. Though I did have that secret fantasy about my dumb boss walking off a cliff. I didn't have an affair, though I did have that uh, flirty moment with the secretary, and I stared a little too long at that attractive lady in the coffee shop. I didn't tell any lies, though I did tell that little white lie to my neighbor about being booked next week so I didn't have to go to his house for dinner. For the most part, I've kept my promises, though I didn't take my kids to the park like I told them I would. I'm happy to say I didn't get into any fights or arguments with anyone, though I made sure that driver who cut me off downtown had a piece of my mind. So all in all, yes, I'd say I've been a fairly decent, good Christian this week. There's a problem in evaluating or grading our lives in this way. First and foremost, it runs completely contrary to how Jesus views faithfulness. Jesus does not run through a list of things that we have or have not done to determine whether we are faithful or unfaithful. Instead, he discerns the thoughts and the dispositions of his people. But instead, it's in- for Jesus, a faithful Christian life is not merely external, but instead it's internal. By defining faithfulness in this way, he's not doing anything new. He's being consistent with the standard of holiness from all time. The law, namely, from its inception, has always defined obedience as a heart-based love for God and for others. Now, the six principles that we're going to see today, uh, Jesus gives in this passage to emphasize the truth that faithfulness and to be a faithful kingdom citizen means to not just have a wooden obedience, not just to go through the motions, but to obey God with a whole heart. Now, I think it's important to remember the context of these six commands. Jesus is not simply giving out a list of commands. I've heard people say that this is the new type of Ten Commandments. Well, that's, that's not it. There's not even ten of them. There's six, okay? Instead, he's showing how he's fulfilling the law. Furthermore, Jesus does not take away from the law. He doesn't add to it. He doesn't change it uh, uh, in, in, in any serious sense. It's still the true law. He is interpreting the spirit of the law in light of his own coming. And here's what he's saying in this section. Because he has come, his people may now genuinely obey God may now genuinely obey God. He deals with anger. He deals with adultery. He deals with divorce and oath-making, vengeance and love. But let me tell you, these are not all of the ways we can apply his principle of loving God with a genuine obedience. The principle that we obey God from our heart can apply to other things as well. So you might have read ahead and you see that none of your problems are listed in these six things. Well, just know that it hits you somehow if you know that in your heart you do not love God truly from your heart. For example, Jesus could have just as easily have said, You have heard it said, you shall not steal. But I say to you, if you cheat on your timesheet at work, you have stolen in your heart. 
He could have just as easily have said, you have heard it taught, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. But I say to you that if you're addicted to your phone, you have committed idolatry in your heart already. All that being said, these six commands are essential and practical for your life, but they are illustrations of a greater point. Obey God with your whole heart. Not just with your external actions. So as we move through these six commands, it's important to consider how Jesus is calling you to love him and to love those around you with a true heart, which sums up God's law. Now keep in mind, Jesus' teaching is meant to display his authority. And that's not just his authority and how he interprets scripture. Jesus' teaching, because he is the true king, is meant to put his finger on every aspect of our lives and claim it as his. I think as he goes through these six things, he reminds us our relationships, our purity, our marriage, our promises, our hurt, and yes, even our enemies are not our own, but belong to him. He, as the king, can make demands of every aspect of our life. Now, let's begin. Jesus says, You have heard it that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, in these verses, Jesus shows that the command to not murder has far more to do with the secret thoughts of your heart than what you have done with your hands. Even in not murdering someone, a person could still break the spirit of God's law by harboring anger against them. A murderer, I think we would all agree, would deserve to be judged, right? We all agree, murderers deserve to be judged. And yet Jesus says, Well, so does the person who is bitter against their brother. So does the person who harbors secret anger against their brother. He says anyone who insults his brother, which in Greek is equivalent to calling him a moron. I mean, he actually says a moros. You call your brother a moron or an idiot, raka. You've sinned. This is everyday terminology in Greek, and it's everyday terminology For us as Christians, just driving down the road, we might call someone an idiot six times. But he says, if you do that, you are guilty of judgment. So what does a faithful Christian life look like? It looks like Jesus' people not calling each other stupid or idiotic, whether it be in their internal thoughts or their, their audible insults. Instead, we are to show love to people by speaking and acting in such a way that demonstrates the love of Christ. Jesus goes on to show what we should do in case we have an offense with someone else or someone has an offense against us. He says it in verse 23 through 24. He says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. I just want to read that again slowly. If you are at the altar of the temple, coming before the Most High God, whose holiness is to be taken seriously, you don't just waltz up to the altar. If you are at the altar, in the middle of your sacrifice, the priest has the knife on the throat of your lamb, leave your gift and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, 
and then come to offer your gift. Put plainly, Jesus so emphatically desires that his people love one another that he commands us to interrupt the worship service to be reconciled with an offended brother. Our interpersonal struggles, and this is the truth we need to see, our interpersonal struggles are not isolated from our walk with God. They directly impact our relationship with the Lord. Love for God and love for others, they go hand in hand. And if something is off in our relationship with others, you better believe something's going to be off in your relationship with God. That's the danger of of our interpersonal fights, of our bitterness, of our anger. Jesus says that offenses between brothers and sisters must be dealt with quickly. In our day, this might mean you awkwardly walking over to someone in the middle of a song and saying, hey, I can't sing the truth of this song because I know you have something against me. And I know I have something against you. My friends, that's true worship. You singing a song knowing you have an offense and not being willing to be reconciled by it is actually sin and offensive to God. You interrupting a worship song to go be reconciled to a brother is true worship. It might be asking a hurt friend to come out for donuts before you go and teach in the children's room. It might be you walking up to a brother and sister and pulling them aside and saying, hey, just before we go in there to worship God, I feel like I I need to ask for your forgiveness. That's what Jesus wants us to do. But very plainly. Any offenses you have need to be dealt with at the door before the worship service even begins. And if you find out while you're worshiping, stop and go reconcile. And then come back and give your gift of worship. And just in case you think that just applies to us in the church alone, Jesus expresses that his heart is for us to seek quick reconciliation in every situation. Not just with with believers, but with unbelievers out in the world as well, those who want to sue you and hurt you and, and, and take you to court and throw you in jail, to have quick reconciliation with them as well. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Or there's actually adversary. Come to terms quickly with your adversary while you are going to, with him to court, while he's dragging you there. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until, the, until you have paid the last penny. And this, I think, it's just a practical wisdom point. My friends, we must not be people who are slow to be reconciled to others. My friends, if you are in rush hour traffic and you rear end someone, do not wait until their insurance sues yours to make it right. You let your dog out in the morning and he runs across the street and bites your neighbor. Do not wait for the neighbor to send you medical bills and sues you to make it right. The heart of a Christian, the heart of someone that's in the kingdom, is someone that loves reconciliation, not growing bitterness. Someone who loves that things be made right. Someone who loves peace. That's the heart of a Christian. Obedience as an issue of the heart is made especially clear in this next command, which I suppose all of us will probably feel convicted by. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Now Jesus shows that again, 
man's purity is not simply based on whether or not he has an affair that week. So all of us that are going, praise me because I have not cheated on my wife yet again this week. Jesus says that's not quite full obedience. It's a matter of inward intentions. A matter of what you think in those secret moments. The words, in his heart, are especially important for emphasizing that goal. That's not just what goes on on the outside. It goes on, it's what goes on on the inside. Murder is the seedling. It, the seedling of murder is anger. Well, the seedling of adultery is that secret pleasure at what you look at, what you think about, what you fantasize about. It's lust. And so to truly obey God's command to not commit adultery, a person has to start by addressing their secret thoughts. We live in a world that has trivialized sex appeal. It's almost become humorous, right? Where a husband has a secret, uh, has a secret Instagram thing that he follows and he likes watching all the, the bikini babes catching the fish, right? And we just kind of laugh at that and say, oh yeah, everybody needs eye candy. We've trivialized the sex appeal. Whether it's a stolen glance at a friend's spouse or whether it's a long-lasting pornography addiction. Our culture promotes this look but don't touch. And in recent days, our culture has has began to promote a hall pass. It's okay to look and touch as long as your wife is fine with it. Or it's okay to look and touch because everybody has urges. Everybody has needs. You're just meeting Maslow's hierarchy of needs when you go and touch. Everybody knows that you need that kind of acceptance and help and satisfaction. My friends, no such thing should ever come among the people of God. Citizens of Jesus' kingdom recognize that even stolen glances at our brother's wife, even porn addictions are a a complete rejection of God's prohibition of adultery. Complete rejection. God views sex as sacred. The actual physical act of sex is held as sacred, holy. And guess what? He thinks about your thoughts about sex as sacred, holy. Christians are to keep the marriage bed undefiled. That means keeping... Only our spouse in that bed, and only thoughts about our spouse in that bed. When it comes to Christian sex, we don't need to outsource anything. We have what we need with our spouse right there that God has given, and He has brought two people together to become one flesh. We don't need help. And that is what God expects from us. Sneaking lustful looks at people is actually an unloving thing. If you really love your neighbor and you really love your brother, then you will not be looking at his wife or his daughter in a way that would dishonor Christ. Jesus takes it so seriously that he gives one of the, the, the most hardest, impactful statements in the Bible that has caused so many people to trip up. He says this. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And do what? Throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, I do think Jesus expects us to read this figuratively, but I don't think he wants us to see the figurative, see, to see his meaning as figurative at all, right? It seems harsh at, at one point that Jesus would connect a lustful eye and a sinful he- hand to a future in hell. You mean we can actually go to hell for what our eye chooses to look at and take in and what our hand chooses to do? Yes, it's called sin, and sin sends people to hell. It's a theological statement that we have believed our whole life. We have to get to a point that we understand that all sin, even the littlest, seemingly most insignificant sin that nobody else sees, is a supreme rejection of our perfect and good God. Yes, looking at the bikini babe, holding the fish, and you're not looking at the fish, is a supreme rejection of God, who is perfect and good. It's immoral, it's adulterous. And so even those lustful glances, when he says what your eye looks at, what your hand touches can send you to hell, it makes sense when you think about how good God is. He is the greatest. He is the definition of perfection. So it makes sense that even the smallest sin against him is meant to be punished in an extreme way. The old Puritan pastors, my favorite, favorite pastors to read, used to call it deicide, God murder. Every sin as an attempt to dethrone God and to take his throne. Every sin seeking to pretend as if God doesn't exist. So practically speaking, how do we apply what Jesus says here? How do we pluck out our eye, and how do we cut off our hand? Now, I I hope you don't come back to church next week with a stump on your arm. First off, we'll all know what you've been doing. Second off, um, there's some of you that if you pluck out your eye, I, I will officially not be able to tell whether you're awake or asleep in the sermon. So I don't think that's what Jesus intends here, because a man with one eye who's plucked out his eye because of lust can still commit lust. A man who has cut off his hand can still commit sin. So I don't, I don't think this is the solution. I think what Jesus is actually saying here is that sin is serious. Do everything possible to avoid it. Everything possible to avoid it. Now, that, thing, that thought brings a whole host of applications. Does your iPhone make you stumble? Throw it away. Buy a flip phone. Because it is better for you to trash your iPhone than for you to trash yourself with sin. This last week, have you watched anything on Netflix that might have caused you to think about another woman naked and in bed? Have you watched anything on Netflix, ladies, that have caused you to appreciate another guy's abs, cancel it. It is better for you to cancel your Netflix account and to have nothing but a book for entertainment than for you to continue to trivialize your marriage with that. Does your secretary's flirting cause you to drift away from your wife? If it does, very simple, quit. It is better for you to take a $10,000 pay cut to receive a demotion at another account than for you to cut your wife's heart with another woman. The point is simple, my friends. The, the heart of what Jesus is saying here, 
whatever causes you to sin, do everything possible to avoid it because sin is serious. That's why people go to hell. God's grace does not make sin any less serious. It is serious and it is against God. And so as God's people, if we really truly love God, then we will go through every extreme awkwardness, every inconvenience, and yes, even pain. And if needs be death, to obey God and to treat Him as holy. Now from there, it's not surprising that Jesus goes from lust on to marriage and divorce. For many, this is one of the more sensitive of the six commands. We, we, you know, just pointing to the elephant in the room, we have a culture that, uh, where many people get divorced, and so it, it's a struggle. Let's just read what he says here. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now he's, here Jesus points back all the way back to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, where the laws about divorce were given. And basically it was given in this, um, in this uh, uh, world where men were just kind of leaving their wives for no reason. And then she would go and remarry and then they'd accuse her of adultery and then kill her. And so the certificate of divorce is really given for her protection to say, he pushed me away. He sent me away. The certificate of divorce is to uh, protect the oppressed, not to give a thumbs up on the sin of divorce. In fact, in those days, in Jesus' days, there were rabbis that were just kind of tossing around this idea of what it means for a woman to lose favor with her wife. And I mean, the, the interpretations of that are very broad, If a wife burns a mill, there's grounds for divorce. If a wife begins to look unfavorable, then she has lost favor with her husband. And that means he can divorce her. My friends, Jesus takes that and he shows it for what it is. Idolatrous disobedience against God. They were giving their wives certificates of divorce, just like they were said to. But it still breaks God's command. God made marriage not to be laughable, not to, be, not to be, have a terminus in and of itself. God made marriage to be the lifelong commitment between one man and one woman and to have such a bond that it would be indivisible and unbreakable. That's what God wanted. When he, divorced, when, he, when he made marriage. He did not intend for us to keep divorcing each other. And then later in Matthew 19.8, he actually says it's because of the sclerosis, right? You, you've heard of sclerosis of the liver. That's where the liver gets hard and can't process. It's the sclerosis of the heart that God gave divorce. It's because of our hardness of heart. From the beginning, God had a good intention for man's marital bond. For people coming together. And as Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. My friends, to be kingdom citizens, our hearts must not be hard in marriages or toward our marriage. We must not be seeking for a way out, looking for grounds. In order to honor God through a heart that loves him, we must honor the spouse he gave us. If you received a divorce or you've filed for a divorce. We'll come back to that and talk about what you should do next, okay? So just hold on. We're going to keep going through these six. 
Heart-based obedience extends even to the promises or the oaths you make. Anytime you say, I will, or anytime you say, I guarantee, or anytime you say, I promise, Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. The principle is simple. Keep your word. Don't make promises you don't intend to keep. Don't make promises and then habitually break them. In Jesus' day, a person could get out of an oath to God or to others just by simply saying, well, I didn't swear to God. I only swore to Jerusalem. People would get out of their promise-making like that. And, and Jesus takes up the teaching of Ecclesiastes 5 here where he, when he says, basically, it is better that you should not vow than for you to vow and not pay. It is better for you to simply not make any promises than for you to consistently break your promises. We live in a culture that tends to make promise-making rather flippantly. We often make promises, guarantees, hasty agreements. We, we put them on little campaign buttons of all the things that we're going to do. And sadly, in our culture, one of the primary victims of our rash vows are our spouses and children. How many children have been waiting for dad to keep his promise to come home early from work and to play catch? How many wives have been left waiting for her husband to take her on that anniversary trip he promised two years ago? How many husbands have waited on their wives to keep similar promises? It's not just our spouses and children. It's also our friends, our church family, our neighbors, and our co-workers as well who are victims of our lack of promise-keeping. You might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? So what I told my kid I'd play catch with him. I just didn't have time. I had other pressing matters. My friends, as subtle as it may be, You are a representative of God. Fathers, when you do not keep your promises, when we do not keep our promises to our children, we are failing to reflect the Father, the true Father, who never breaks His promises. Husbands, when you don't keep your word to your wife, you are failing to reflect the true bridegroom, the true husband, who never goes back on what He says who always keeps his guarantee. So in all we do, we must obey God from a heart that is filled with truthfulness and honesty. To be sure, things come up, flat tires happen, things get in the way of keeping commitments. But my friends, for us to habitually break them is antithetical to who we are as Christians. In the next section, Jesus revisits what's called the lex talionis. This is one of the favorite ones that we read, right? An eye for an eye, right? <laughs> truth for a truth. We, we know that one. We may not know John 3.16 completely well, but we know the lex talionis. Eye for an eye, truth for a truth. And it comes from Exodus 21.24. And here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
I just want to clarify, Jesus is not saying surrender yourself up for abuse. He's not saying, do not, when he says, do not resist the evil, and he's not saying, just be passive. Even if you, your families, or others' well-being is in danger. I'm not thinking, I'm definitely not thinking that Jesus isn't using this in the way that has been used in our culture so much, that an abused woman's to stay in her home and not, to not uh, reject the one who does evil. That's not what this is saying. Instead, what Jesus is calling us to is calling us to address the fact that we have a heart that desires and craves retaliation. Has anyone told their boss off in the shower this week? Their invisible boss, hopefully, or else you've broken the other command. Your boss makes you mad at work, so you get in the shower and you have the secret debate with him, right? Tell him all the things you wish you could tell him. People cut you off, so you speed up and you cut them off. We script our arguments with people. Wife forgot to make the dinner that we wanted, so we refused to take out the trash. My friends, as sinners, we are people who love payback. We love payback. It goes beyond justice, which trusts God to make it right. Retaliation is where we want to make it right. We want to give back. We, it's an eye for an eye. Instead of trusting God to take that eye, we're the first ones out with our little eye stabber, and we're ready to stab their eye because they stabbed ours. And Jesus is saying, no, my friends. Kingdom citizens are those who love reconciliation, those who trust God for justice, and those who do not crave retaliation. We wait for God to pour out his justice. The final command has to do with one's enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Which, by the way, the Old Testament never says that. It says, love your neighbor, and then they implied from that, hate your enemy. Right? That's good scripture twisting right there. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus points to a normal human tendency once again. We love everyone who loves us. We hate everyone who doesn't. I mean, how many times have you had your neighbor who uh, let his dog uh, kill your cat over for dinner? How many times have you let the person in church that you caught gossiping about you out to, to come have coffee with you? We don't, because we love the ones that love us. We hate the ones that hate us. And yet God has always valued a love from his people that values both friends and enemies, that shows love on those who agree with them and those who are opposed to them. Just to think about this for a moment from a gospel standpoint. Is that not what Jesus has done for us? Did Jesus not apply this? I mean, what does the scripture say? It was while we were his friends that Jesus died for us. Is that right? It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. God pursued reconciliation while we were enemies. That's Romans 5. Jesus applies all that he's calling us to. He loved us when we were opposed to him. He loved us 
when we were chasing idols. He loved us when it was our sin that was going to cause His crucifixion, His torment, His torture, His blood, His whips, uh, the cat of nine tails on His back, the, the pricks from the thorn on His head. He loved us while we were still sinners. My friends, by Jesus calling us to love our enemies, He is simply saying, be like me and do what I have done to you. Now the final verse of the section is a tough one. And it doesn't only apply to loving one's enemies. It actually applies to the entire section. Jesus summarizes all his teaching on the law, calling people to emulate their God. He says, you therefore must be perfect. Whoa, Jesus. Must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now don't let the word perfect trip you up here. In Greek, it doesn't mean like flawless. It actually can mean whole, mature, or complete. It's teleos, right? To be complete. So really what he's saying here is be whole as the Father is whole, right? Or live spiritually healthy lives as the Father himself is healthy. The Father's not tempted by lust. The Father's not tempted to divorce his sinful people. The Father's not tempted to commit spiritual adultery on us. The Father's not tempted to hate His enemies, which is us at times, and us in sin. Be like Him, is what Jesus is saying. Be holy as He is holy. Live healthy, flourishing, good Christian lives in the kingdom of God. Now, in conclusion... I think these six laws are intending to show us something. First, they remind us that God cares about the state of your heart, not just what you do. He doesn't just care about outward obedience. He cares about how you love Him and how you love others. Second, it shows us that God has a high standard of holiness. A high standard of holiness. And this should not surprise us. This is consistent with the fact we have a perfect, holy, good God. So good his eyes cannot tolerate evil. And third, and this is the sweetness of it all, it's to remind us how much we need grace. We need grace to enter into the kingdom, and we need grace as we live in the kingdom. We never outgrow that need for grace. Maybe you're someone who's been guilty of lust, or coming back to the point, maybe you're someone who has had a divorce. You filed for divorce outside biblical grounds. Or maybe you know that you have put off reconciliation with your hurt friend for far too long. What do you do when you know that you have, you are, and you will continue to fall short of this? Well, I think, my friends, you should remember the good news of the gospel. Jesus died to pay the penalty for even your worst sins. And because he rose again, he now stands as your great high priest. Completely sympathetic of the fact that you are weak to sin. And yet still stands on your behalf. Doesn't give up on you. Loves you and pours grace upon grace upon grace. And every day he sends fresh grace and peace. You've been divorced, grace and peace. You struggle with porn addiction, grace 
and peace. Now, my friends, this isn't just a grace to cover up and says, you know what? I don't see it, so that's the grace. No, this is a grace that transforms. This is a grace that changes. This is a powerful, working grace. So, my friends, at every moment, when you find your lives are not quite matched up to what Jesus presents in this passage, grace rushes in. When you live in repentance and resolve to obey God with your whole heart, grace rushes in. When we live joyfully in the command of our King, grace rushes in. So through it all, we are reminded that a healthy, flourishing, good Christian life is because we have a gracious and good Savior who in His grace frees us from the sins that so easily entangle us. Let's pray. Father God, a section like this is tough and it pricks the heart. But Father, I pray, Lord, that you help us remember that you are out for our love, not just out for outward obedience. Father, you are, uh, have your eyes and your goal set on helping us to love you with a pure heart. Not just on making us do what you want us to do, Father, but helping us to love you. So God, be with us. God, we confess together we are inadequate for these things. But we also confess that you are sufficient. So God, in our weakness, will you show yourself strong? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.